FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for joining us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, lots to talk about with our panel, so I want to get right to them uh, today. Uh, Greg Bluestein, a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, as well as an analyst for various NBC uh, platforms, is back with us. Uh, Greg, uh, I see that as often as the case, you are joining us from your car. You're heading out of town again. My mobile studio. Yeah, I'm heading to Chicago later today for a couple of days and then to Washington to catch up with some political folks and some friends. Say hello to my hometown. I um, always love to hear about people getting a chance to be in Chicago. Um, but thank you for joining us, even while you're getting set for a big trip. Um, Charles Bullock is back with us as well. Of course, he's a professor of political science at the University of Georgia. And I always have to say, Chuck, uh, there's no question in terms of longevity alone, notwithstanding the many much research, the books that you have written over the years, the mark you've made on how people perceive politics in Georgia, you are the dean of political science professors in the state. Thank you so much for being here, Chuck. Well, thank you. And seniority, I guess, counts for something. It does. It absolutely does. Andre Gillespie is back with us as well, professor of political science at Emory University, also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory. Um, Andre, uh, is there anything coming up at the Institute that people might be interested in knowing about? So we uh, just finished uh, our uh, academic year season. So, you know, we're in finals now at Emory. But if you go to our website, jamesweldonjohnsoninstitute.emory.edu, or if you just Google JWJI Emory, you can go see a video archive of our last talks, um, in particular, our James Weldon Johnson lecture, which was last week. Um, Michael Blakey, a bioarchaeologist, gives a real sweeping history of sort of uh, scientific racism. And it was a fascinating talk. So I would highly encourage people oh. to, to go watch that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That sounds really terrific. Thank you for mentioning that. All right, let's get right to it. Um, Greg Bluestein, um, yesterday, uh, President Biden announced his uh, uh, race for a second term. He's, he's uh, going to run for a second term in the White House. Did it with about a three-minute uh, video. And um, I think it's important to point out that there were allusions in that video, uh, actually, to Georgia, as you wrote about in a piece on it for the AJC. Yeah, we saw the famous John Lewis mural in downtown Atlanta. We saw glimpses of Atlanta skyline, um, Ebenezer Baptist Church's sign, and we saw Marjorie Taylor Greene as a sign of what uh, Joe Biden called, President Biden called, MAGA extremists. What was interesting to me was, of course, not the, you know, not, it was not surprising that this, this second term election launch was announced. What was interesting, though, and again, not surprising, but still notable was the fact that there was an outpouring of support from Georgia Democrats. Not so long ago, I was hearing and we were hearing grumblings, you know, um, talk about maybe Kamala Harris running, uh, Gavin Newsom, J.D. Pritzker, you name it. Other Dem Senator Warnock was one of the names we, we would hear a lot, maybe a year and a half ago or so. Um, but even with middling approval ratings, even with some Democrats in Georgia, the, there was uniform support behind Joe Biden's reelection from Democratic leaders here. You quote uh, uh, Michael Thurman, uh, CEO of DeKalb County and a frequent panelist on this show, as calling Biden uh, Trump kryptonite, right? <laughs> Yeah, he's look. He, he was. He said no one else can claim what what uh, Biden can claim, which is he beat Donald Trump. He can help kind of meld together liberal voters and moderate voters. He can win over the liberal base, but also win over those disaffected Republicans and moderates who he won over back in 2020. That won't be easy by any means, um, but Democrats hope that Donald Trump can give them that unifying force that no other political issue has given them over the last few years. 
Andra, uh, it's interesting that the rest of the field does seem to have been cleared out for Biden. And in fact, we've learned that Democrats aren't even scheduling any primary debates, um, uh, which in and of itself tells us that they have put all of their money on Joe Biden's second term. Well, I mean, so it's not surprising that the Democratic Party wouldn't schedule debates um, just because I think that having debates with Robert F. Kennedy uh, Jr. and with Marianne Williamson would just end up being a spectacle. Um, it would just actually prove to be an embarrassment to the party because um, they aren't going to stay on what would be a traditional message. And so it's going to just the, the, the sound bites would be loopy. And so it wouldn't uh, be favorable to Democrats overall for that. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have, you know, in the past week have, been, you know, certainly been looking at the surveys that say that most Democrats want somebody other than Biden to run for president and that there are lots of people who have concerns about his age. Um, and, you know, on one hand, I take those seriously. Yes, uh, at 80 years old, there's always sort of like the the risk that, you know, he may die in office that's actually higher than it would be if we were talking about somebody who's healthy and in their 40s, 50s, or 60s, right? He's less spry than he was 20 years ago. All of these things are, are, are there. There's certainly a narrative in conservative media that looks at every gaffe, every stumble, and amplifies it. So if you ever watch Fox News, you know, on Sunday, especially if you watch Maria Bartiromo in particular, right, she, she's been known to open shows with like Trump missteps to just prove that he he's not fit for office. So nobody's saying that he's not, you know, old, right? But it's a question of is he there's a difference between not being spry and being senile. And there are conservatives who are trying to make that case, but there really isn't a lot of evidence that would suggest that he's senile, that, you know, we're not talking about sort of like the latter part of the Reagan era where there might have been legitimate speculation about whether or not he was in the early stages of Alzheimer's. And then secondly, you know, the, the, the big risk is there's letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. So yeah, it'd be nice if a, you know, a Gen Xer uh, were uh, running for president and that's likely going to happen in 2028 um but it would be undermining the Democratic Party and the Democratic ticket to openly challenge, to propose a serious challenge. And so I actually found it somewhat ironic that RFK Jr. was going to be the one to do it, right? Because his uncle challenging Jimmy Carter in 1980 did the Democratic Party no favors. And so while RFK Jr. is no Ted Kennedy, right, like this is the type of thing that I think Democrats are trying to avoid by appearing unified, even if Right. You know, there are concerns about Biden being a less than ideal candidate. And the fact of the matter is, is he has a record to run on and he has a track record of having beaten Donald Trump before if Trump proves to be the Republican nominee. Boy, Chuck, uh, Andra had, had a lot in what she just said that I want to pick up on as we move through this conversation. But uh, first, let me uh, ask you this. Uh, there was great disappointment among Georgia Republicans when uh the uh, DNC announced they were going to take the Democratic National Convention to Chicago, not to Atlanta, as 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 uh, close to the announcement as the weekend before people in Atlanta, Greg Bluestein has reported, thought it was coming here for sure. Um, you might think that Democrats would have really one of two reactions. One, they'd sort of back up for a few minutes and wonder where they head next, or two, they'd leverage not getting the convention to get as many resources as possible uh, to be able to put Biden uh, and other Democrats across the finish line in 2024. And that seems to be the route they've taken. Well, once that decision was made, yeah, there was nothing to do about that. But, uh, you know, Chicago, 1968, Chicago, 2024, there may be some parallels here in that in 1968, Hubert Humphrey gets tapped by the elite of the Democratic Party. He was not the choice of the rank and file. What are we seeing now? Well, 51% of likely Democratic voters saying they don't want Joe Biden. But the elite, the leadership of the party has rallied very much to his cause, and that's what's being, cho what's being chosen. Does this have some consequences? Well, in 68, what the consequences were, a lot of voters, particularly younger voters, did not get behind Humphrey, and he narrowly loses that election. Could we be looking at that? Now, of course, the other side of this coin is the Republican side is just the opposite. We're beginning to see a little bit of weakening, of cracking in the support for Trump among some Republican leaders. 
But in terms of the Republican rank and file, man, they are behind him. And that's true in Georgia. That's around the nation. So, well, you know, in each party, there is some division between where the party leaders are and where the average supporter of that party is. But what I love about your comparison is that on the Trump side, it's the grassroots that are all in, whereas the leadership may be somewhat concerned. Right. On the other hand, uh, in, in, in the case of the Democrats, it's the Democratic leadership that says we don't really have any viable choice. And uh, Michael Thurman says that uh, Biden is the strongest candidate to take on Trump. You know, it's interesting, uh, Greg, that um, uh, uh, Andre raises 1980 when Edward Kennedy did challenge uh, Jimmy Carter all the way to the convention. And many people feel that among the many problems that Jimmy Carter had in trying to win re-election. One of them was Edward Kennedy's strong, strong efforts to win the nomination away from him. But go back to 1968, which Chuck talked about. And in that case, um, the leadership, Mayor Daley and many others were strongly behind Hubert Humphrey. There was a big grassroots effort to get Gene McCarthy some uh, 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 attention and build some momentum for him. That didn't happen. They were sort of strong-armed, those McCarthy people. And as uh, as, as uh, Chuck points out, that was one of the reasons uh, Humphrey went down in the general election. Yeah, and a polarizing Republican ended up winning. And, and Democrats don't want to hear that parallel, but it's something I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more as the DNC arrives. I love the fact that they you have that split that Professor Bullock just uh, explored with Democratic leadership in Georgia and around the nation rallying behind Biden, even as the grassroots uh, are, you know, skeptical, concerned, you name it. And the opposite happening with Trump, where especially here in Georgia, especially with Governor Kemp and other Republican leaders, either steering clear of Trump or saying outright, we need to move on. Um, so it's that's going to be an interesting dichotomy moving forward into the 2024 campaign. Uh, Greg, let me stick with you for a moment. Um, we know, of course, that the Democratic National Committee wants to change its calendar to push Georgia way, way up in the uh, schedule. And, of course, um, Governor Kemp and Secretary of State Raffensperger have said we're not going to do that. But that's news that is months old by now. So where does it stand today? And are there any opportunities for Democrats moving forward to, in fact, get the date of their primary here moved up, which would, of course, be a benefit to Joe Biden. Yeah, Democrats really hope to salvage a, a victory um, in that front, because with DNC going to Chicago, that was their last, that was their next big hope. And there are some Democrats who say that's a much bigger deal than DNC coming to their city. Um, because it's it's you know not only would it bring a, a surge of investment and attention, but also it could set a framework for elections to come. It does not look like it's going to happen. Um, you know this has always been an uphill battle, namely because the the one person in Georgia who has the sole authority to make the decision is Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, and he said he doesn't want to do anything to move a calendar to either require two different election dates, um, or to jeopardize any delegates from any party. And Republicans have already set their date for uh, their their first four uh, early voting states, and Georgia is not one of them. So Georgia would stand to lose delegates should it try to jump up earlier in the schedule. And there's no high-profile Republicans who are rallying behind this. Governor Kemp said he's not interested in making this push. Other state Republicans aren't giving Raffensperger any cover should he want some. So I expect the date to be set um, in February, March, April, not in one of these early, early voting windows. Of course, Chuck, what that means is that once again, Georgia voters, whether they're voting in a Republican or a Democratic primary, of course, in the Democratic primary, there may be only one significant candidate on the ballot, and that will be Joe Biden. Marianne Williamson uh, isn't going to be a particular threat. I don't think neither is Robert Kennedy. But on the Republican side, it does mean that uh, Republican uh, voters won't have as much of a voice in determining who their nominee will be. Well, yeah, we're later in the season. Maybe that there's no choice. By that point, uh, 
Trump may have locked up the nomination. So I think Georgia really is missing an opportunity here that if we were to jump on this, then we might be locked in as one of those early states going forward. And as Greg's already alluded to, you know, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, or independent, economically, that could have a big impact upon this state, and particularly uh, hotel, uh, hotels and restauranteurs across the state, not just in Atlanta. But you know, if we were one of the early states, we would see Kansas coming here, you know, beginning a year at least in advance. They'd be traveling around the state. You know, this may be a, an opportunity that will not come back again. So I think this is a big mistake to think of it from political or partisan terms and say, well, it's just something Democrats want to do. It would help you know, the state as a whole and in time help both parties because voting early, whether it's a contested Democratic or Republican nomination, you'd like to be among the first voters because you'll have the full array of candidates on whom to choose. Andra? I, I agree with Dr. Bullock. Um, so I think that this is uh, short-sighted in, in, in the long term. So if Georgia wants to be a player, if Georgia wants to be competitive, in some ways, even if Georgia wants to d display its loyalty, um, the idea of, of, of it moving forward should not be hindered by the fact that it was Democrats who proposed it first. This has a boom for everybody um, in the state. Um, there are media outlets who would want all of this early attention and the ad dollars that come with it. I think the hospitality and tourism industry would benefit from this. Um, and, uh, you know, it really does highlight Georgia's unique place in the Deep South of, of being distinct and different from its neighbors. So um, and it's more competitive than Florida. So, yeah, I, I see pluses in all of this. I would respectfully, you know, ask the Republican leadership to kind of reconsider this idea and forget that it was Joe Biden's idea, because I don't think that should matter <laughs> at this point. <laughs> All right. Um, Andra, I'm going to stay with you for a moment because I want to uh, uh, start with you on a uh, some points that David Leonard, uh, who's a senior writer for The New York Times, uh, put into a, his daily newsletter this morning um, about Joe Biden, about his age. Again, we know that, that the polling across the board shows that people are nervous about Joe Biden's age or, to you know, a similar extent, nervous about Donald Trump. I also think it's interesting that in, I think it's the YouGov poll, they found that 38% of the people they surveyed said they found the idea of a rematch between Biden and Trump exhausting, which I thought was an interesting response. But let me tell you what Leonard said about age and Biden. The biggest reason that many Democratic officials are nervous about President Biden's age is not his ability to do the job in a second term. Strange as it may sound, the American government can function without a healthy president. The U.S. marched toward victory in World War II while Franklin Roosevelt was ailing in 44 and 45. Four decades later, the government managed its relationship with the teetering Soviet Union while Ronald Reagan's mental capacity slipped. In each case, White House aides, cabinet secretaries, and um, military leaders performed well despite the lack of a fully engaged leader. And the point that he goes on to make is that the age factor has more to do with the perception of voters as to whether a candidate is capable of performing his uh, functions or not. And I add one element to this, and then I'd love your thoughts about it. Um, he says that's why it's more important for Biden to be out there this time. He's had fewer news conferences than any president since Reagan. He does not go out and do many campaign events. And Leonard argues he's got to get out there and show people that he can be fully engaged. <clears throat> You know, I, I agree that the president should be out there more. He's accountable to constituents. So being out there is, is important. Um, and I think that there are things that Biden has been able to do in terms of being able to get a lot of things accomplished in that last conference that he's going to end up touting. Um, and, and so it was evidence of the idea that he can do the job. His cardinal sin, and I don't know if it's a fatal cardinal sin or, or not, was uh, not being able to hide how the sausage was being made. And I think some people inferred from the 2020 campaign that when we uh, moved back to professionalism, and moved back to civility, right, which has been an unobtainable sort of goal at this point, because 
that requires cooperation and people don't want to cooperate, but that he was going to make governing look easy and governance isn't easy. Right. And he actually wasn't able to hide the sausage making process and people are grossed out by that. And we're just going to have to accept that this is hard and that it's messy. And that even if you get to an end where there is a policy output, that it's going to take a lot of steps and there's going to be, you know, couple steps forward and some back sort of as we're going along. And I think people were not prepared for that. And I think he should have prepared people more for that. Um, you know, I think that during this election cycle, the vice presidential candidates might matter more. Um, they usually don't matter at all. But if we do end up with a Trump uh, Biden rematch, and we're talking about old presidents, people are going to look to see um, if Kamala Harris and whoever the Republican nominee um, is are prepared and capable of being able to take over at a moment's notice. And while I generally agree that part of the greatness of our decentralized system is the idea that you're not supposed to be reliant on one branch, one group, one person. Um, we still, there's this, the unitary head of the presidency that does make it special and unique. And we're also in a moment where, in my view, we have flirted with authoritarianism. And so because we have been flirting with authoritarianism, I think that people are putting undue, info, um, undue attention on this one office. And I think we need to correct uh. that it's also important for us to, to to make sure that, like, you know, we do pick presidents who can do the job. Um, Greg, uh, regardless of age, uh, performance out there in public, um, certainly one of the things that Democrats are going to push is how much Biden accomplished in his first term. And a perfect example of that took place just this week in South Georgia, when John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock both went to Wilkinson County which has been a county on septic for its entire history and is now building a sewer system. And that sewer system is largely funded by the federal government and, uh, and the, the big Biden package that is sending so much money to states for infrastructure and other needs. And I imagine we're going to see a lot more of that moving into 2024. A lot more of that. And that, that's why even Republicans who voted for the infrastructure measure were questioning some of their colleagues who didn't, saying, look, you know, Democrats can just go to every new bridge, every new road, every new highway, every new sewer system, put a sign up there and say, brought to you by President Biden. Um, to, to, when, when, the, when the president during the campaign in the first couple of years in office, when he faced criticism about his age, he would just tell folks, watch me. Uh, watch what I can do. And, you know, over the first couple of years before um, before gridlock and we're seeing in Congress right now, he accomplished where he passed a number of measures that Republicans don't like, but Democrats love. Um, and so I, I, a big portion of his reelection campaign will be premised on what he has accomplished. Um, of course, there's many, many challenges ahead and Republicans uh, aren't fans at all of what those accomplishments have been. Um, but we, we, we can expect to hear John Ossoff Raphael Warnock, other Democratic leaders in Georgia, touting those as surrogates of his. Greg, I know you have to leave us early. I want to try to get one more story in before we lose you. Um, you reported this week that uh, that Governor Kemp will not attend the June State Republican Convention, which is a big deal for a governor not to show up at his own party's convention. Um, it, it continues the sense that there's a real split between the Trumpies that have controlled the state party, the David Schaefer's of the party, uh, and people like Kemp who are trying to push back against uh, Trump. But now you report that the Attorney General, Chris Carr, won't attend. Brad Raffensperger, Secretary of State, won't attend. John King, Insurance Commissioner, won't attend. So this does appear to be a, 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 a split that's occurring in the party, although Kemp denied that in an interview uh, just in the last 24 hours. He denied that, but then also said that he, he wouldn't want to help a party that was going against the GOP um, you know, elected slate. And all four of those folks that you just mentioned have something in common. All four of them were, were opposed by Donald Trump the last election, and all four of them easily beat back their challenges. Uh, David Schaefer, the Republican Party chair, is also on the record opposing some of those GOP incumbents. So he's seen as working against his own party's leaders. At the same time, the state party has elected more fringe uh, uh, de delegates and activists to party posts, which is even more complicated. Um, so, um, 
Uh, Greg Bluestein, I'm going to interrupt you uh, because I think you are on the verge of having to uh, get to your uh, next event. So I apologize for cutting you short, but I also want to give you a chance to, uh, I want to thank you and say, have, have a great trip to Chicago. Let's take a break. We'll be back with Andre Gillespie and Charles Bullock in a moment. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Charles Bullock and Andrew Gillespie continue with me on Political Rewind. A little inside baseball. The reason, if you heard the end of that last segment, I know it was very abrupt, kind of awkward. Uh, Bluestein had cautioned us that he was expecting, at right at 9.30, a call from a high-ranking Georgia elected official, and he couldn't miss the call. <laughs> that call came in just as he was continuing to uh, uh, talk about the issue I presented to him. So if you noticed how awkward it was, I apologize for that. But you know what, Chuck, let's continue with that for just a couple of minutes. This apparent split between the Kemp faction of the party, which has been, uh, you know, decided to move on, uh, you know, with Trump behind them, and those uh, Trumpites like David Schaefer, uh, uh, Burt Jones, the lieutenant governor, and others, um, it t- what is the impact of that in the long run? How how what difficulties does that present to the party as they move toward 2024? Well, observation has been made by many is that uh, it's now the Donald Trump party. And that's not just true in Georgia, but that'd be true across the nation, that uh, he has had a huge influence on it. And what we're seeing here in Georgia, it looks like, you know, at least a, if not a divorce, a temporary separation in which the elected leaders, who, as Greg pointed out, were all opposed by Donald Trump and by individuals Trump recruited to run against them, are opting not to go. Uh, The one individual whom Trump uh, uh, supported in this state and who won, that would be Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, has said, yes, he's going. So it's kind of the the Trump team will be convening as the Republican Party uh, and the elected leaders who historically we've looked at and said, well, that's actually the party leadership. And traditionally, we've thought of the governor as being the leader of the party from which the governor comes. Uh, They're going to be absent. They're going to be doing other things. And one of the things which makes this feasible is that uh, uh, Brian Kemp now, because of legislation passed, I think it was maybe just a year ago, can raise tremendous amounts of money on his own. He does not have to work through the party structure in order to raise, raise funding. So that gives him some independence, some a chance to break away from the party and go about uh, you know, a different message, um, maybe creating a different image of the party. Uh, long term, what are the consequences of this for 2024 and 2026 if you have you know, half of the folks who think of themselves as Republicans in one camp and half in another camp? You know, Georgia being such a competitive state, it would uh, be in the best interest of the Republican Party to have a united front because I suspect Democrats will be united. Well, Andre, let me put it in a different context. Uh, we know that over last weekend, a number of Republican district meetings, conventions, elected in their leadership roles, far-right, pro-Trump, I think it's fair to call extremist officials. Um, so they're in place mm-hmm. as we move to 2024. If Donald Trump appears to be, by the time they get to the convention next summer, the nominee of the party, it strikes me that it is certainly possible you could have two Republican delegations from Georgia competing to be officially seated at the convention. A Trump delegation led by people like a Burt Jones and a, uh, and a more uh, mainstream, I guess is the word, delegation, delegation uh, that's run by Governor Kemp. And the challenge, I think, for people like Kemp are going to be to head that off before it gets started. 
Yeah, I mean, and part of the way that that's going to be headed off is to look at the granular level about where primary vote comes from. So if people don't want that, then they need to figure out kind of who uh, who's the alternative and then make sure uh, that they vote uh, for those people and that they get their votes over the threshold so that there's uh, more diversity in terms of the representation um, in terms of preferred candidates for for the convention. I think. You know, it's not surprising that people like Brian Kemp and Brad Raffensperger and Chris Carr would sit out this election because they also don't want the headlines of getting heckled and booed at their state convention, which would happen. Right. And then, you know, I also think about this in the context of the Fulton County investigation. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of the people who are, you know, who are going to be at that convention are possible targets of Fonnie Willis, um, uh, you know, and or material witnesses. Like we know the only reason Burt Jones isn't is because Willis made the mistake of hosting a fundraiser for Charlie Bailey. So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, knowing that that announcement would be imminent or, you know, would be coming is also like an idea of, you know, for um, older politicians to a more established politicians to try to stay clear of the optics of hanging around people who might be on the verge of indictment. And Mel, John- another thing that may happen here too, to think on going to get ahead of ourselves a bit, but suppose Donald Trump were to be reelected as president in 2024, what's he going to do with the kind of the power of the presidency and the resources that can be distributed? He's going to invest it in this Republican party to the disadvantage of uh, the Chris Carrs and um, Brad Raffensperger's of the world. And that could clearly have quite an impact upon our 2026 Republican gubernatorial primary in this state. Chuck, we should remind our listeners that this has happened in Georgia before. Pat Robertson had an alternate delegation of Georgia's that tried mm-hmm. to get seated. What was it, the 2000? Or is it 96? I'm not, I don't remember which Republican convention, but yeah. there was a big, a huge fight uh, in the right. state Republican Party between those really right wing Pat Robertson folks um, and the more mainstream uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush folks. I think it must have been 2000 mm-hmm. because I think it all came to a head at the 98 state Republican convention. Well, we want to go way back in time. You know, Georgia had contested delegations to the 1952 Republican National Convention, whether you were a Taft or an Eisenhower person back then. Oh, my God. You know, we're both old, Chuck, but I got to say, I don't have a lot of memories of that 52 fight. Um, let, let's well, let's take there, a look. I but uh, I've heard about it. <laughs> Let, let's move forward. Uh, Chuck, while the ball's in your court, I'll start with you. Um, let me preface this conversation by saying, we do not try to take the bait every time Marjorie Taylor Greene says or does something outrageous, we try, we say, we're not always going to talk about it. We're just not going to go down that rabbit hole. But there are times when I think talking about her behavior, her statements, is meaningful and tells us something about what's happening in the Republican-led U.S. House. With that in mind, Chuck, this past week in a Homeland Security uh, Committee meeting, uh, hearing, Marjorie Taylor Greene took her street fight right into the middle of a U.S. House committee meeting. And I'm going to play two examples of it and then ask both of you what you make of them. First, let's listen to she, uh, um, Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security uh, head, was uh, in a hearing being grilled by Republican members, probably fairly, uh, for concerns about how the border was being uh, handled, the problems that they're facing. Um, but when Marjorie Taylor Greene had her time, uh, here's what unfolded. Mr. Secretary, do you believe that all of us have a responsibility to elevate our rhetoric and to denounce anti-Semitism and anti-police re- rhetoric? long are you going to continue this outrage, complete outrage, where China is poisoning America's children, poisoning our teenagers, poisoning our young people? How long are you going to let this go on? Congresswoman, let me assure you that we're not letting it go on. 
We are fighting this. No, I reclaim my time. You're a liar. You are letting this go on, and the numbers prove it. Uh, Chair asks the uh, gentlelady if um, she wishes to seek unanimous consent to modify or withdraw her remarks. I will not withdraw my remarks because the facts show the proof. All right, so I apologize. We heard a little bit of the other clip I'm going to play, and I'll do that in just a second. But what happened in that instance is that when she was asked to withdraw her remarks and said she wouldn't, uh, a motion was made to take down her comments. And that motion, rather than just saying strike them from the record, meant that she was no longer allowed, based on the uh, procedures in the House, to speak at that meeting. But here's the other example. Um, Eric Swalwell had, on the floor of the House, talked about the extremist remarks that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, had made uh, in regard to uh, whatever the issue was uh, on that particular day. She had, I, I remember. She, he, he showed a clip in which Marjorie Taylor Greene, or a social media post, had talked about defunding FBI and how this was a an insult to law enforcement, legitimate law enforcement. So in that committee meeting, the same one that she called Mayorkas a liar, here's what she said about Eric Swalwell. Mr. Secretary, do you believe that all of us have a responsibility to elevate our rhetoric and to denounce anti-Semitism and anti-police rhetoric in this country so that Jewish Americans and police officers can be safer? Congressman, I do. Thank you, and I yield back. That was quite entertaining from someone that had a sexual relationship with a Chinese spy, and everyone knows it. But I move to take our words down. Completely inappropriate. Yes, yeah, stand by just a second while we research the rule. Uh, the chair uh, recognizes the gentlelady from Georgia and asks if she would like to retract those words. No, I will not. All right, so in that case, you heard Swalwell first, and then... Marjorie Taylor Greene. Chuck, what's going on here? She's now got free reign because the speaker has given her cover. Right, right. And, you know, making laws and legislatures, uh, it's, it's a difficult job. You have people who come from alternative perspectives. There's bound to be conflict. Now, historically, a way in which that conflict has been reined in has been through what is called courtesy, so that you do not direct your comments to an individual. You direct them to the chair. You do not impugn a person's motives. Uh, you certainly don't call them names, things of this nature. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is going very much against this. Uh, and there's been, you know, Quite a bit, number of people have observed that the norms which have been important in trying to make Congress a functioning body have been significantly eroded. Uh, and you know, she and Laura Bobbert and people like this are the ones who are undermining this. And, and this contributes to why we see very little legislation that actually comes out of Congress, that most of it now is what's referred to as messaging. So that rather than you're making efforts to enact new legislation. No, you're trying to score points. Uh, and it's scoring points against the other side. Make them look bad, perhaps more than being able to point to at the end of a session, look what we've accomplished. No, look how bad we've made the other side look, and therefore don't vote for them come this upcoming election, support us. So it's, you know, it's very disturbing for those of us who are concerned about the future of these institutions, which have served us so well for a couple hundred years. Andrew, we should point out that what Green is alluding to is that there was a Chinese spy who got close to a number of members of Congress a number of years ago. Swalwell was one of them. There were rumors that there was an affair. It's never been proven. Swalwell denies it uh, uh, adamantly. Um, so nevertheless, this is how Green deals with it in, in a U.S. House committee. Yeah, I mean, I actually view the two incidents as being different. So I'm not trying to justify Green's outburst in calling Alejandro Mayorkas a liar. 
But I also think that in the context of strong language that we've seen in Montana with the transgender state legislator um, or, you know, in Tennessee with the Tennessee three. And, and theirs is different because they really did break rules to speak out of turn, um, even though their contention was is that they weren't being recognized, which is why they felt like they had to do it. Right. All of those comments are sort of germane to whatever was being discussed at that particular moment. And so while we can talk about declining civility and lack of comedy, which I think are very serious issues, like none of this, we should be able to be, be able to talk without yelling at each other. And the fact that none of these folks could get their point across without yelling, I think is it, it sort of says something about where we are as a civil society that we need to address. The problem with the Swalwell comment is that it was completely out of line, right? It was tangential. It had absolutely nothing to do with this discussion. Um, and so like that is the kind of thing that does warrant, um, you know, warrants, uh, you know, some type of, of, of punishment and, and warrants addressing. I think when people saw Green align herself with Kevin McCarthy, I think we were wondering whether or not she was maturing as a legislator, whether or not she would moderate her tone somewhat. And I think what these acts cumulatively suggest is that no, right? She was just being really shrewd in terms of trying to figure out a way to get her get out of jail free passes so that she could get away with things. And as uh, Chuck was talking, I went and looked at her um, <clears throat> her bill sponsorship uh, record. And, you know, it's interesting, like in the last Congress, you know, she was putting forward stuff like the Fire Fauci Act. And you see some of that sort of red meat cultural issues, right? You know, she's sponsoring bills that will ban gender affirming care for minors. She's also offering amendments that would seek to tweak legislation. But as Chuck has pointed out, this is largely symbolic. And the thing about her is she actually you know, she sponsors a lot of stuff. It doesn't get passed. Sooner or later, people are going to see that all of the bluster doesn't lead to anything substantive, right, in terms of actually being able to get it through a chamber. And especially if after this Congress where her party is in charge, she still can't claim credit for a bill, right? That's something her constituents need to take notice of or for a bill that actually becomes a law, right, that might say something else about her effectiveness that's not measured in terms of the number of likes she has, the number of followers she has, or the number of times she's on Fox or Newsmax. You know, thank you both for those observations. I, it occurs to me that when I hear that those outbursts, I'm very old-fashioned. I mean, I fell in love with politics reading Alan Drury's novel, Advise and Consent, which is about a nomination fight in the United States Senate, uh, and, and in which one of the things that was so fascinating was the rules by which senators spoke to one another that Chuck referred to uh, in his comments a couple of minutes ago, the formality of the proceedings, the really the grandeur of the proceedings, and then, of course, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. <laughs> and and I guess I'm old-fashioned. I still see Congress as being a place where, in fact, we do have dignified, meaningful uh, debate back and forth. So um, maybe this younger generation uh, is going to go in a different direction. But as, as uh, I think, uh, Andre, you point out, it's unfortunate. We do need comedy uh, in our government uh, uh Chambers. All right, let's get to our final break of the show. Back with more in a minute. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's through line wherever you get your podcasts. Andrew Gillespie, uh, we now know, uh, based on uh, uh, some things that we talked about on the show yesterday, that Fonnie Willis has uh, told law enforcement uh, across Metro Atlanta to prepare for a heightened security between July 11th and September 1st, the dates that she says could, somewhere within them, uh, she will announce whether she's going to indict anybody in the investigation of efforts to overturn the election here. Um, so if Trump is indicted, if that indictment comes out in, say, August, just to pick a, day, a, a, a month, um, it, it's right at the time that the Republicans will have their first debate. Clearly, a trial won't take place until well into 2024, if not 
later than that, it will hang over the entire uh, election in 2024. What does that mean for Trump, the, Trump's candidacy and the, his supporters out there? Well, Trump has said that nothing is going to prevent him or deter him from running for office. So indictments won't deter him. A conviction won't deter him. He's going to fight. And I don't think his posture is going to change one way or the other. He is going to try to make hay of the situation and try uh, to claim victimhood and, and offer political prose- uh, persecution here. Um, and I think that, you know, there is a, a, a significant segment of his base that will go along with him on that. Um, I think the larger question is not so much Trump, but who else is implicated. And that might actually um, influence public opinion about how to take these charges. So, you know, we know from the current indictment that he's under in New York, uh, the survey data suggests that a majority of Americans sort of think that there's some there there, right? But that always the question here has been whether or not those charges are serious enough. This is a more serious case. And I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know what the sort of rules are in terms of sort of like what the indictment has to say in terms of its specificity. Um, But I hope Georgia's laws require greater specificity than what I saw in New York. Uh, So, uh, you know, if she makes out a case that sort of lays out all of the things that she thinks are happening here and there's a conspiracy and other people are involved, we could be talking about something explosive. And, you know, I'm not going to bet on Donald Trump updating to say, wait a minute, I, I, you know, if I if I get indicted in this way and everybody else gets indicted with me that I can't do this anymore. Um, But I, I think the reaction to it could be different because this is a more serious case than uh the case that we saw in New York a couple of weeks ago. Chuck? You know, based on what we saw in New York, if there is an indictment handed down this summer, then that will help Donald Trump among Republican voters that will work to the disadvantage of the uh, Nikki Haley's and whoever else has announced they might be challenging him. So it helps Trump there, but it also helps the Democrats in that, you know, a multiply indicted candidate for president is not going to play that well with the independent voters and particularly with the white college educated voters who in this state and a number of the other swing states are so critical to the success of either party. So getting indicted, yeah, it uh, it works to the Democrats' advantage too. And it goes back to, I think this, I think I heard this on your show, Bill, oh, this would have been, what, 2021 probably, where Heath Garrett pointed out that the survey research, which was being done here by the Republican Party, not by uh, an independent group or else, was that, yeah, each time Trump kind of was making gains and uniting Republicans behind him, Democrats were picking up like 1.1, 1.2 votes for each new Republican vote. So, yeah, whatever happens here, I think will have an impact going into the 2024 election. And uh, this, of course, may not be the end of the story. There are also those federal uh, indictments which may come along. So as these pile up one upon the other, whether or not any of them have come to trial, uh, the mere fact of these indictments, yes, it helps Trump with his base, but it also helps Democrats with those people who are not in the mega camp. Chuck, I would want to make an argument that um, the New York case, which many people consider flimsy and which is built around a payoff to a porn star, uh, obviously it's it's serious. But you know uh, whether Trump is convicted on those charges or not, it's it's not the kind of uh, conviction that could happen here, Chuck, in Fulton County. RICO charges. Charges that you have conspired to overturn an election is a much it's a it's a serious charge. And to a certain extent, I've got to wonder if a Donald Trump, how much time would you have to even be out there campaigning if you're trying to prepare for a trial that could be costly to your future as a free person? Well, yeah, these may build upon each other. You say the it looks like the least serious one is out of New York. Here, perhaps an indictment for trying to overturn an election, and then conceivably a federal charge that trying to you know overturn the government by staging the uh, or encouraging the yeah. uh, the January sixth attack upon upon Congress. So, from one perspective, yeah, this goes from bad to worse, which uh, again. 
for those people who are not firmly in the MAGA camp, you know, more and more of them are going to start scratching their heads and saying, well, even though I may like what Donald Trump did, some of his policies, that's not the image I want to have for the United States of America. So, Andre, uh, Joe Biden won the 2020 election, despite the fact that because of COVID, he rarely left his home in Delaware. He was criticized by Republicans, of course. They tried to use it against him. It didn't work. I suppose if you look at that example, uh, Trump could be spending all his time preparing for criminal cases and still uh, do well in an election. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, this raises the question of, you know, what are the impacts of rallies? And so, you know, Alan Abramowitz has done work, Chris Schiller in 2016, Trump doesn't significantly increase his broad share in places where rallies were held relative to similarly situated places that were. Um, you know, it's mobilization that matters. It's the hard work of volunteers who are knocking on doors and making phone calls that ultimately at the end of the day matters. And Trump kind of blew up the script as well, right? You didn't see, he got a ton of earned media, so he didn't have to spend a lot on advertising. So there are already ways that he's run an unconventional campaign and still won. So, you know, I think he will figure out how to sort of take the indictments and things in stride. It's just a question of whether or not that undermines his reputation. Andre Gillespie gets the last word in today's political rewind. Uh, Andre, Charles Bullock, I'm really grateful to both of you uh, for being with us today. I really always am so appreciative uh, when I get to hear the two of you analyze the political stories we look at. I learn a lot when you're on this show, and I know our listeners do as well. So thanks so much for being here. Greg Bluestein was great, and uh, we wish him well as he flies off to Chicago for a few days. Um, I just want to mention the fact that tomorrow on Political Rewind, we're going to turn our attention to a truly troubling subject. There have been reports lately of horrific incidents and horrible conditions in Georgia jails and prisons. And tomorrow we're going to go in depth in looking at just what's going on, uh, cite some of those cases, and then ask, is anything significant being done to correct these problems? That's on tomorrow's show, so I hope you'll all be with us for that. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care, stay healthy, and be good to one another. Bye, everybody. <laughs>